Everybody and welcome to another True Stories of Tinseltown. And I have a goodie for you today, as I always say, because I do think they're goodies, but some are extra goodies. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> and today is kind of an extra goodie because I adore the man we're talking about. And uh, I am talking to Marshall Terrell. And then he is talking about Steve McQueen, who I know so many of you guys love. And on my Facebook page, so many of you uh, love when I post pictures of Steve or any little tidbits about Steve. And the name of Marshall's book is uh, Steve McQueen in His Own Words. And welcome, Marshall. Thank you so much for having me. I absolutely love uh, the book. It was amazing. Um, it, it is a wonderful book, everybody. And it's pictures I've never seen before of Steve and how you do it. It's quotes from Steve, his own quotes through certain points of his life, talking about different parts of his life. Where did you come up with all those quotes? Well, you know, as, as you may or may not know, this is my seventh book on Steve McQueen. Wow. I've had uh, plenty of research that I've done over 30 years, and I keep all my research. And um, so the, kind of the idea that came to me was, you know, even though I've written several books on Steve McQueen, every year I'd see a lot of other books come out on Steve McQueen, and they were all either retreads or all kind of their take on Steve McQueen. And I thought, gee, wouldn't it be interesting just to have a book of where Steve McQueen gets to tell his own story in his own way without any filter? Um, and without any um, third party kind of chiming in. And then that's when this, this idea came to me. It's like, well, you know, I've got all these photos that I've never used. I've got all these quotes I've never used. Let's put them together in chronological order and allow Steve McQueen to tell his story um, as he would have uh, had he lived. Now, this is a kind of an, a little interesting known fact, and that is right before he passed away, he was contemplating two books. He was going to do one with his wife, Barbara, mm -hmm. and they were going to do a book called The Long Haul, and it was going to be their pictures and their adventures together on the road. Well, he passed away, and Barbie and I did that book. We, we did it as The Last Mile, which came out in 2006. So we, we took care of that. And the other book that he was going to do at the end of his life was going to be with the L.A. film critic, Charles Champlin. Um, and they were going to do a, like a memoir or an as-told-to biography. And again, his cancer had advanced so quickly that he had to abandon both ideas. So again, kind of hearkening back to that, I thought, let's do uh, let's do a book with just McQueen where he's telling his own quotes and telling his story in his own way. And there's nobody chiming in um, other than a caption or two, just to kind of let the uh, reader know like where he was in his life. Because I wasn't even going to write captions for the book. I was just going to be all him. But my publisher said, no, we should probably do captions so that you can give the reader just an idea of where he was in his life and how this story progresses. So it's, I said, okay, cool. It's wonderful. And you didn't, you know, you weren't um, 
it wasn't all over the place. You know, you just put it where you thought it needed it. So it was mostly Steve's words and you just kind of put it in in the time or whatever. And, you know, you said people said that they got emotional over reading and, and the pictures are amazing, you guys, because you see him as such a young guy and talking about his childhood. It's just really emotional because I loved the guy. You know, I love the guy. I think he was just cool. And um, it just got me. And when it ended, I knew how it was going to end. I knew how Steve died. I knew the story. And yet I had tears in my eyes, literally, truly. I didn't cry, cry and blubber and cry, but I just felt so sad but it's a beautiful right. book. I don't want to make you you think, oh, boo-hoo-hoo, you're going to cry your eyes out through the whole thing. It's not. It'll make, he'll make you laugh. He's funny and, and insightful, and you learn so much about him and right. his own and, words. And, and, uh, you know, and you mentioned emotional, and, and I had an interviewer ask, was it emotional for me? I said, no, I kind of look at things differently. I have to kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Um but I have heard that reaction from a lot of people, and I guess it makes sense because it's a visual book, given yeah. that it's photos. And, the, and then, of course, his, his words have a lot of weight. Um, and then, of course, as you know, when you progress through his story, it, it would become emotional. Um, so it, it's, it's a different reading experience than, say, reading a big biography where you're getting a lot of words. You're just kind of getting what you need. Um, but I'm, I've been really tickled and pleased with the reaction of the book because this has par- perhaps been the most reviewed book of my career. And um, the reaction has just been so very strong. And I'm just kind of surprised by it all. But I'm, I'm happy to take it. You should. Major props. Because you have, you have um, documents of Steve's. You have so much stuff of Steve. And really, I felt like I was having him talk to me. I'm sitting around, I'm reading this, yet he's he's talking to me about his life, which is really, I've never had that, really reading a book. And he just quotes. And um, it's so well done. And I can't stress this enough. If you are a Steve fan or, or you're not so sure who Steve is, you'll love this. And these pictures, ah, oh, and his, his story... It's amazing. So thanks for doing it, Marshall, and thank you for sending me this book. I love it, and you deserve the great reviews. Okay, so why don't we start in chronological order for Steve, um, Steve's childhood, being born. And this is Steve's quote, my life was screwed up before I was born. <laughs> I hate to laugh, but isn't, that's yeah. like a, such an on-the-money quote. Yes. You know, he, he's referring to the fact that his parents were both screwed up people and that, you know, he pretty much didn't have a chance is what he was saying. And that quote is, is what I always felt because his, both of his parents were alcoholics. Yes. They most likely met in a bar. She was 18 or 19. Uh, he was not much older. He might have been 21. Um, and, you know, so he they meet in the bar. They obviously have sex. And, you know, Steve is born. And Steve is born smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, what worse time can you have than having a child during the Great Depression? And they're so, not in love. They're, they're just two <laughs> people who hooked up, basically, is what you're saying. Exactly. And and so then she has to um, move in with her parents. Um, and she tried to, to she tried as hard as she could to get away from her parents because they were very religious people. 
and the and and her mother later on um uh was schizophrenic and had to be uh, uh sent to an insane asylum a mental a mental institution and so um because she had once tried to kill her daughter so oh, lovely. Yeah. Her do- so those are all the sorts of things you know that are, that are going on behind the scenes even before Steve's around. So when you know when when he when he made that quote, I mean that that quote not only has impact but it, it's it and it and it gets right to the point in one sentence. My life was screwed up before I was born. So true. And his quotes all are like that. They they they're not a lot of words, but they're so descriptive. You you get the point. You know what I mean? It's just there. So then from there, here's a quote. I milked cows, worked the cornfield, cut wood for the winter. There was always plenty to do. I came to love and understand animals and came to feel that in a few ways they are superior to human beings. Yes. And, and you know, he has such a forward thinking approach on animals and the environment. But how he got to the farm was that he eventually, um, his grandparents, you know, the, 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 the great depression had such an impact on them. And then they started having some um, health issues. So then they had to move to Slater, Missouri, which is the farm that, that McQueen is referring to. And they handed him off to his great uncle Claude, who was a hog farmer. And so, uh, Steve, and I'm into that house and it's, it's a couple miles outside of town. So he was on the farm and it was desolate. So, um, you know, there weren't a whole lot of kids around and, uh, you know, he definitely had to work the farms because back in the old days, your farm hands were either people you, you, uh, hired or, uh, the kids that you uh, raised. So he, he definitely had to earn his keep on that farm. He did. And then, he had to do this. He left there, correct? He ran away, or did? Yeah, he actually ran away with a circus. And one of my <laughs> probably my favorite photo in that book <laughs> is the circus because <laughs> you know when he ran away from the circus, yeah, you know you always think as a biographer, well, that sounds like a fable. That sounds like mythology. It does. That sounds too good to be true. <laughs> And so uh, a few years later, uh, I did actually go to Slater, Missouri, and I interviewed people. And I interviewed the guy who said I watched him. He said there was a boxing match going on. And and I watched Steve McQueen. The last vision I saw of him was Steve McQueen. Uh, the, the boxing match ended, and, and, and he, he ducked underneath the canvas and walked to the other side. Because, and and that, was, that was the carnival. And so when I went to Slater the, the following year, I asked a couple of locals for photos because they don't have a historical society. So they said, well, we'll see what we can do. But a lot of locals here don't like to share their photos. Well, lo and behold, this guy came through for me in a big way. And it was, that, it was I don't know if it was that particular circus, but it was a photo of the, of the circus in Slater. And it's the town's it's the town square, and it's got the picture of the Kiva movie theater where McQueen first saw his films mm-hmm. and saw his first westerns and fired his cap at the screen. And that that picture just blew me away when I saw it. And I just thought, wow, this has got to be a double-page spread. In the book. <laughs> it's and, and it is. Yeah. This is. I love this quote. Do you know where I had my first drink? I was 13 and on the road. One night I got terribly hungry and stopped at a farmhouse for something to eat. A woman invited me in. She wasn't bad looking. She was old enough to be my mother, but she kept me there 72 hours. Did I learn a thing or two? <laughs> he was 13 and on the road. Yep. And, and, um, 
and you know, a funny, a lot of people have gravitated to that quote that, that have interviewed me. They they find that uh, a very funny. But yeah, he was a young kid and out on the road. I mean, he was traveling in the circus and he was a hobo. And uh, you know, he found himself in Canada as a lumberjack. And uh, you know, he he uh, hopped a ship, uh, uh, hopped a cargo ship to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where he was a cowboy in a brothel. <laughs> And then when he gets back, he's he's sleeping in a park and he's cited for vagrancy and he has to do 30 days on a chain gang. That's amazing. So it's just this incredible, colorful life that you just don't read about anymore. No, he had to go to this place. This was a, a big thing for him because he was called incorrigible. And his mom sent him to the Boys Republic and it's a reform school in Chino, California. And that made quite an impression on Steve. And... Um, it straightened him out. And this is one thing he said about the guys he was with and himself. I was pulled out of society and stuffed in school with other guys who had been pulled out of society. And we all had one thing in common. People thought we were bad. That's pretty heavy duty. You know, he's with all these, you know, your parents aren't with you. You don't have anything. Your mother says you're incorrigible. People think you're, and all these kids, they weren't bad, you know, but they just had that thing. And I just right. felt very bad about that. Well, um, but you know what? It, it turned out to be the best thing in the world for him. And his mother sent him there because he was running the streets. He was breaking into cars and breaking into shops and stealing hubcaps. Um, and, you know, he was coming home. She, she had gotten remarried again, and he was getting into fights with the stepfather. And, this, and the stepfather was beating him pretty profoundly. So she really didn't have... She was young. She didn't know what to do. Right. She didn't Um, have many options. And had no options. As you know, women back then just did not have the economic options that they do today. Um, So the only thing that she really could do was stick him in uh, this reform school, which was Boys Republic. However, it turned out to be the greatest thing in the world for him because it gave him a sense of discipline. He met a counselor there by the name of Frank Graves who had taught him – English had taught him plays. Uh, he, he, he cites Frank Graves as the first guy that got him interested, you know, in literature and plays. And, um, and he basically said, Steve, you know, you're a pretty smart kid. You know, you just need to give yourself a shot in life. And so Steve was there for 18 months and it gave him the courage when he got out. Um, now when he got out, he went back to New York and he went to go see his mother. That didn't work out. And that's when he hopped on a, um, Hopped up on a merchant marine ship and went to San San Juan, Puerto Rico. But when he got back, um, you know, he he hung out in New York City and he finally figured out I I need some more discipline in my life. And so that's when he joined the Marines. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, Steve McQueen on why he joined the military. I was 17 years old. I wasn't going anywhere. And a little voice inside my head said, you better wise up, buddy. I needed discipline and I needed regimentation. That's pretty impressive for a 17 year old right. to do that because most of them, nah, you're not going to tell me what to do. Is this true? He was oh, he was a robust 17 year old. He was five six and a half. He was tiny. Yes, he was at that time. Yeah, and he grew. He grew to five five ten and That's a half. That's what I thought. And he weighed 135 pounds. You got to see these yes. pictures, you guys. Oh, was he the cutest yeah. little doll baby? <laughs> he really was. 
Well, the, the cool thing is, uh, as you know, I've, I've accessed his military files, and so I got that information from the military files. But the other interesting thing from the files that showed was that, you know, in, in movies, there are certain words he can't pronounce. It's, he doesn't have a list, but there's certain, like, Zs and Ss he can't pronounce. But in the military file, it shows that, you know, when they checked him in, he had this big cut underneath his lip and that needed stitches. And so, and, and he says in the file that he got in a fight uh, with somebody hit him and smashed him in the mouth with a Coke bottle. And so um, that had a profound Im- impact on his acting because, again, he couldn't pronounce certain words. So, you know, he had uh, he had a very, he, he, he made the conscious decision to only say a few words of dialogue. Um, part of the reason was he was dyslexic and he couldn't read. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and part of the reason was because of this lip. So, uh, you know, it's interesting all the things that you find in, in, in files. Wow. Here's a quote. I was an old man by the time I was 17. Yep. And that, yeah, and that resonates, I think, with a lot of people. But, yes, I mean, he, he had been on the road. He had seen a lot of things and a lot gang. of fights. A lot of, yeah, been, been exposed to a lot of different things. Merchant so, yes, Marines. I could, <laughs> I could see where he did definitely felt like... He was an old man at the age of 17. There's a picture of him on New Year's Eve, Sam's Crescent Cafe in Washington, D.C., and he's, like, drunk. He's, like, sleeping, practically. And this woman looks like she's, like, 45. I'm sorry, oh, yeah. late. She may, have been, she may have been a young Tootsie. I can't tell, but she did, didn't she? Look, she looked like his mother, but what did he care? You know, when you're young, yeah, that's when your you're time 17, to that's you your wanted. fantasy. Yes, it does. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> but when he was 13, he had that other lady for 72 hours. Hubba, hubba. Um, so he was, yeah, well, all this stuff is so great. The well, mar- the cool thing about that picture is, um, you know, I had no clue where it was. And then I, I, I put a magnifying glass on, on the table and it said Sam's Crescent Cafe. And so I Google it, boom, Washington, D.C. And that's where he was stationed at that time. Adorable. So, so it's, it was obviously a uh, uh, New Year's Eve. It was a New Year's Eve picture because on, on the, the writing on top of the photo said New Year's Eve, like 1950. And that's exactly where he was stationed in that area. Um, and then I looked it up on Google. And then so it's like it's just kind of fun learning those things. Very much so. So he had a, he went AWOL and he went to the brig for 30 days. <laughs> He went there, actually, I think, for 41. But the, here's the interesting thing. Here's what the paperwork shows. And then, you know, I, I, I consulted a uh, Marine expert to look at the file. Um, and he said, yeah, look here. It shows that he went AWOL. I said, well, what, what, would, what would make a guy want to go AWOL? He goes, well, he obviously had a girlfriend. And so he goes, so he, he had a girlfriend, and, he, and he, was, he probably had to come back to base. And then he's like, well, I'm with her, and yeah. I'll I'll stay an extra couple of days. I'm gonna get I'm gonna I'm gonna get thrown in the brig, but it'll be worth it. So, so not only does he go AWOL, but when he comes back, my 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 marine buddy told me that um, cops back in those days they would have these little wanted posters, and they were called. And so McQueen would have been called a straggler, and and so whenever they're up and down um, uh, the beachfront or what have you or wherever they are, they have these pictures of these stragglers, and so McQueen. And the paper shows that 
uh, he was caught by a cop and they got in a tussle. And so he got thrown, I think, 41 days in the brig. Wow, so the, the judge in that case uh, probably would have given him lesser, but the fact that he tussled with a cop gave him a longer uh, sentence for that. And the, the sad outcome is that the the disciplinary detail that he was given was to clean out the hull of the ship. And so that's what had the asbestos in it because um, asbestos yes. takes 20 to 30 years to uh. develop. So uh, that little that little trip AWOL might have cost him his life. That's terrible. That's so sad. There's a picture of him with his buddies. So many pictures I see of Steve. Um, he's got his shirt off. <laughs> he likes to show that chest. He's a cutie yeah. pie, a cutie pie. It says here he's in... Oh, this is a great picture. He looks, he's wearing this dapper suit that does not quite fit him. He's 19 years old, and he's at Myrtle Beach, where he's courting a Southern Belle named Sue mm-hmm. Ann. Right. I'd been going with a girl there, so I stayed at the beach and ran around with her crowd, 18, 19-year-old college kids, you know? And I thought this was wonderful, going over to people's houses for dinner and getting dressed up, going to dances, and everybody liked you. And you were saying hello to people. I mean, I never had this before. How sad, right? <laughs> that this was yeah, something I, so I, I look spectacular at that quote and I say, How sad. for him. I, oh, you just want to go, oh, Steve. <laughs> Yeah, well, they they said that when women when women um, encountered him, they wanted to mother him. He, you know, he just had that quality yes, about him. You just want to, and those types him. of quotes, yeah, but, lend itself to that. But he was also cute. So there's mothering, but <laughs> it sounds terrible. You want to love him and mother him. He's so so adorable, um, and he just he's like this cute palooka. But I didn't know he was still. Dyslexic, and he said he was not good for learning books and stuff. Well, no wonder, you know, right? The poor guy. So yeah, the, and and he was a little hard of hearing too. So there was oh, there was a lot of that going on. Uh huh. So then he goes to New York. It seemed to be where the real action was, and there's where I headed. And he shows a picture of Steve in a very cramped and gross East Village apartment, which is very common then, and. Believe it or not, they still have some, but not so much. I was living in a cold water flat with four other guys. One was a poet with a beard. One was a lumberjack. We were all goofing off. We'd go out, and if there was any trouble about, I'd want to be a thousand miles away. But when a hassle did start and police came, they knew me by my first name. Poor Steve. <laughs> Poor Steve. He tried to play. He wanted. He tried to play. What is that, the saxophone? I'm sorry, what was that? I'm looking at these pictures of Steve uh, with the fact, uh, the saxophone, cute as a button. The the saxophone was just a (laughs) a prop, I think, for a headshot. And, but the interesting thing was he used to hang out with all the jazz uh, people uh, back in the, in the fifties in New York. And one Mm -hmm. of them was Miles Davis. Um, But, you know, he, he, and he, he gives a quote that, uh, that he he tried his hand at, at becoming a jazz musician, but you know it, it wasn't a very steady profession. You know you don't get to eat. Uh, I think the quote is, "You don't eat steady." No, it's um, a, if you want to be a musician, you've got to devote all your time to it. Besides, it's a rotten life. You don't eat steady. Yep. So he, and so, I mean, I never knew that until I saw that quote. Um, but there's that great picture of him holding that sax. 
And uh, uh, somebody uh, that interviewed me was also a musician. He goes, he really does know how to hold that thing. I said, yeah, he sure does. It sure looks like it, but I know he never played it, and I know that when he sang, he was tone deaf, so he was not musical at all, although he was a big jazz fan. He, you know, there are pictures of his, his jazz collection, um, his, his record collection, and a lot of it was jazz. And especially in the village at that time, those were, they had the great cafes and the beatniks, snap, snap, and jazz and the whole nine yards. It was just really, uh, it's not like that now. It hasn't been like that for years. But when Steve was there, it was like the epitome of what um, the village was. And this- well, and there's a great picture in there of Louis Tavern, which I found mm. through the Fred McDerrick estate. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, another one of those great finds uh, because that that was his hangout. And I always, you know, pictured in my mind, what does Louis look like? And so then I, I, uh, I went into a New York City archive and sure enough, it was there. Very, very cool looking joint. And I have, I'm looking here. There he is standing there. Um, he's in the village. There's a cute picture of him with his sleeves rolled up at in front of the apartment building he lives in. And yes. things happened in the village. Good things, bad things. People expected you to be a little off center when you lived there. The chicks were wilder and the pace was fa- pace was faster. I dug it. I love how we always said I dug and chicks. <laughs> I dig that. <laughs> well, he he talked like a fifties hep cat. He did. He was a riot. Yeah. Well, I like I mean it's emotional, but he also makes you laugh. This is a saddie. I was haunted by a vision that someday I would be standing on the street corner at age 50, begging people for spare change. I asked myself the bitter question, man, where are you going? When are you going to get with it? And I had no answer. Talk about beat. I was it. Yeah. And New York City at that time in the 50s would have been a very scary place without any kind of money. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's obviously nothing like it, was, it is today. And I think, you know, back then people worked hard. They could get by. They could, you know, he he lived in a nineteen dollar a month cold water flat. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can you could get by. But um, I, I, you know, New York City back then uh, was tough. And um, I'm sure that that quote came out of that vision that he had, which is, um, you know, chilling almost. Yes, and where he lived in the East Village was Skank Larue for years. I mean, had just. Started- started changing for the better um, when I moved there. And it was a big drug den. It wasn't the West Village where the really cool cafes and things like that were. The East Village was where it was very, very poor and um, lots of drugs, lots of problems. And now, of course, to live there, if you live where Steve's living now, was living then, it'd probably be four grand, you know, for... A wow. one bedroom, if you're lucky, you know it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is so cute. So he's taking. He had his celluloid debut as a sailor in a short industrial film by Bell Western Electric. He was so damn cute, man. Well, and here's the thing. Here's how he got that job. Um, his mother was seeing a guy by the name of Victor Lukens, and Victor Lukens was a very uh, um, uh, well-known and, uh, he, you know, he shot, uh, industrial films for, for the commercial. Uh, so this, that was a picture for AT&T and Ma Bell. Um, but L- Victor Lukens really gave him kind of his first acting jobs and that was one of them. And then he also, L- Lukens also wrote a letter 
uh, to the neighborhood playhouse to get Steve in because everybody kept saying, Steve, you're such a character. Uh, you'd be a great actor. And sure enough, he was. I love this. For extra money, Steve McQueen often posed for pulp and true crime magazines that were popular in the 40s and 50s. This is a riot. You guys have to see these. And there's a letter uh, about... Uh, what, season, school. Oh, so he gets into his school too. On stage, I can open up and no one would hurt me. For the first time in my life, I found a little kindness, a place where people talked about their problems instead of punching you. Oh, my words. But the pulp stuff, lawless lovers, wild bride of evil. And they have tons of pictures of him doing like pulp photos. Yeah, that's how they made extra money back then. What the heck? And he auditioned for the great Sanford Meisner, the man who most influenced my career. Until he got me, I understood nothing. Raw talent must be channeled carefully or it can be ruined. Meisner knew how to bring out the best in me, and he made me look deep into myself and face up to my potential as well as my limitations. And let me tell you, I was no prize package for any teacher. I used to sit at the back of the room and talk to nobody. Meisner gradually weaned me out of that shell. And that quote was affirmed by a lady that I know. I helped edit her book. Her name is Paula Stewart, and she was uh, Lucille Ball's best friend. But she went into a couple of Meisner's classes, and she saw McQueen uh, there at that time. And she said he would not talk. He'd sit in the back room. He didn't say a word. He was just petrified is kind of what she said. And intimidated because he wasn't – you know, it's so many of these people who go into acting um, are not – what would one would say properly educated, but right. you know they they're educated in life and other things, yet they still feel uh, insecure and like they don't belong. And so that's the thing that I got from Steve that he just was afraid that he would say something wrong or whatever. It was just, well, and, and there was that whole fifties uh, American macho male man that, and he, this is what he said. He he said I felt actors were a bunch of candy asses. Yeah, and. He had that attitude about acting, but yet he was so good at it. Oh, man. Um, and so there was there was that whole thing, and there was that whole stigma to it. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm I'm a child of, of the '70s. I, I you know my I grew up you know, and, and I played sports, and so we 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 had a stigma towards people in drama, you know. So uh, I can't even imagine really? what it been like in the '50s. Oh yeah. Yeah, I guess so, and and then it changed to be cool later on. <laughs> Well, people finally started to figure out that, hey, there are a lot of, a lot of beautiful women in acting. So, That's what uh, everybody says. <laughs> no, you want to be an actor. You want to look at yourself on the big screen. Forget the, the hot chicks. You want to look at yourself on the big screen. I hear that from so many actors who say, you know, I wasn't into it, but then I saw these hot mamas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. So I'm looking at this picture. Steve McQueen's feature film debut was an extra in Girl on the Run, a 1953 burlesque thriller and murder fantasy. There's Steve. Now, back in the days before IMDb, uh, you know, they they had – there was a listing – uh, with, with the the Library of Congress, and, mm-hmm. and it had a list of like all his credits, and it had Girl on the Run, and we we're like, well, what is this film? What is this? Um, and then fast forward like twenty years later, with the advent of the internet, then you start seeing like ads for Girl on the Run, and and, and then little clips, 
And we're like, holy cow, that's, you know, that's Steve McQueen. Because he would make these little things thinking that they would never, for him, it was an acting credit, so he did it um, and, and tried to build up a resume. But he did it with the idea of these things, including the blob, like they'll never see the light of day <laughs> once it's finished. <laughs> and so that was one of these great little discoveries, you know, that, Hey, McQueen was in this thing, and Did, then and this is a picture from the lobby card. Can we find it? it or is there? It's, oh, it's not an actual now. movie. Is it a movie it's or just there. little it, pictures? It's a, well, it's it's a, it's a movie. It's a serious B movie. It's out there. It, it's on, <laughs> it's on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but guys. It was, yeah, it was made in '53. We have to look but it, for it this. Had a, it, it, it might have had a drive-in movie run, perhaps. That was probably it. <laughs> it's called Girl on the Run. From 1953, right. starring Steve, actors they bore me. They're mostly cornballs. <laughs> mm-hmm. And again, this picture here it looks like that looks to be another uh, crime magazine that he posed for. That is a riot. So this is really interesting. And I'm. They said uh, during this period he was often described as mistrustful. 1955 photo. Um, Defensive, difficult, competitive, and ambitious to the point of ruthless. Well, I got to say this quote. I'm glad Dean's dead. It makes more room for me. Did he really Mm -hmm. say that? Yeah, he said that to an actor by the name of John Gilmore. And I knew John. John just passed away a couple years ago. But I knew John, and he... um, he knew McQueen in the 50s, and he did not like Steve at all. And the reason why is they shared a girlfriend by the name of Deanna Rico. Uh-huh. And, um, and so um, so they met, and so they, they met like a week or two right after Dean's death. And McQueen had used James Dean as kind of a yardstick, like, that's the guy I want to be. Yeah. And then, then when he found out he died, that's when he told that's when he told uh, Gilmore. And Gilmore said something to the effect of, you know, Steve, saying something like that, karma might bite you back in the butt. Um, and then um, uh, and then there was another quote that, that Deanna Rico gave. Um, Deanna Rico gave, uh, yeah, uh, John Gilmore. And she said that McQueen would look in the mirror every morning and he'd say, I've got to make it. You're going to make it. You've got to make it, man. And he would just look into the mirror, scream into it, willing himself to success. So anytime he saw a guy like James Dean or Paul Newman make it, it made him um, really, really angry and upset. And one time, John Gilmore got a part over Steve McQueen, um, just a little part called Lamp Into My Feet. But he said from from that day on that he became enemy number one. Wow. Because, yeah, because it took a part away from Steve McQueen. Oh, my. Well, that was that time. Lewis Tavern, 149 Bleecker Street, in the coolest part. So many joints are still there, but it's it's so different. There's comedy clubs there, but so many places are gone. Now, here's early photos of Stevie Baby with his first wife, Neil. Yes. And he's lifting yeah, weights. Yeah, he met her. He met her sometime in 1956, I believe. The last, and, uh, yeah. She, she was the she was the more successful of the two. She was a successful Broadway dancer, and he was a struggling actor. She was on the cover and of Life, right? That's right. And so she was pegged to be the next big star. Hmm. And then when when she met him, 
you know, he did everything he could to, he did not want to be the, uh, he did not want to be the, the husband. Uh, Mr. Took, Adams. Uh, second yeah. billing. Yeah. He did not <laughs> want to be Mr. Adams. As a matter of fact, one of the great quotes in the book was like, you know, you know, when I wanted to become really successful was when they went out to Hollywood to, to MGM and she was getting the star treatment and guys were elbowing me and calling me Mr. Adams. He goes, that's when I knew I had to become, make something of myself. Here's his quote. The last thing I wanted to do was fall in love with some bride. <laughs> That's so, yep. so Steve McQueen. Um, and here he is. He was going to do a hat full, of, hat full of rain, but he got yanked from that. I can't see Steve in that doing that. And well, I guess he did it. He, he did actually do it. He got yanked from it after three or four months. And then, and then uh, after he got fired from that, he did a summer stock of it. And so the, the, the next quote that you're going to read I see <laughs> is, is the summer stock uh, because he was tired of it and, and he wanted to go to Hollywood. Uh, yeah. When I get through with the show, I'm going to going to go to Hollywood and be the biggest Evan star since Brando. That's a uh, very prophetic quote. Yep. Because he was. He certainly was. Never love a stranger. That was the one that you just saw. <laughs> Is that the one? Ever love a stranger? The one we were just talking about? No, that was something different. That was Girl on the Run, right? Oh, yes, you're right. Never love a stranger. Um, that turkey wasn't released for two years, and the only notice I got was from one critic who said my face looked like a Botticelli angel had been crossed with a chimp. Ouch. <laughs> That's awful. And then well, but that's 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 some self-deprecating humor that yes. you don't always get with him. He's so cute, and then but he does have that cute little face. I have a nephew who I call Snosh, Snoshu, Snoshu. I still call him Snosh, you know, when he's grown up. And he has a Steve McQueen Snoshu face, and that's I would call Steve probably Snoshu. as well huh. because he had that Snoshu face. It's just so cute and sort of. Uh. I can't explain it. Anyway, here's a picture of he and Anita Corso in 1957 doing the BLOP, looking like the oldest living teenager. How old was Steve when he did the blob? He was 28 years old. He, you know, he was so good. He was such a good citizen. (laughs) He was like, you know, he wasn't one of the bad boys. He was the better boy. And he was just yeah. cute. I love the blob. Well, it wasn't exactly Othello now, was it? That's what he says about the blob. No, I'll tell you how I got that quote because it was classic. So the director, I'm sorry, the producer of that movie was a gentleman by the name of Jack Harris. And um, and, and McQueen did the movie, again, thinking that this movie was going to quickly fade from obscurity. He'd get paid. And so they see each other in the early – yeah, in the – yeah, they see each other again in Malibu in the early 70s. The Queen is now a major, major superstar. And he lives in Malibu because he wants to um, be away from it all. He doesn't want to be bothered anymore. Mm-hmm. And Jack Harris lives there as well. So, But he's in line, and a cashier is saying to him, Oh, Mr. McQueen, it's so good to see you. I'm just a big fan of yours. I love this movie. I love this movie. I love this movie. And McQueen nodded his head and said, oh, Thank you so much. And then... Harris is like two or three people down. He says, oh, Steve, what do you say about the blob? And then Steve turned around, saw Jack Harris, knew he was being put on, and he said, (laughs) well, it wasn't exactly Othello now, was it? But it's a classic (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi. So a lot of these quotes, they're not just, you know, they're not just written um, by uh, 
you know, they're not in, I mean, I get some from press releases. I got some from raw interviews. Right. I got some from published interviews, but there are some that were passed on to me, you know, anecdotally. And this was one of those ones. And, and uh, some the ones that are passed on anecdotally are, are funny because those are the unguarded moments and, and, and the moments where, you know, he's being, he's really being himself. He doesn't have to temper what he has to say. Yes, so he starred nineteen fifth wanted fifty eight wanted dead or alive, and it was an instant top ten hit on television. Um, it's my job. I'm just an actor playing somebody else for a day. Uh, I love this quote. Uh, Steve McQueen with his horse Ringo, the black quarter horse he rode on wanted dead or alive. <laughs> Ringo threw McQueen six times in a five week period and bit him on three occasions. I guess he didn't like Steve. It's a good thing he likes me, McQueen quipped to a reporter. Mm-hmm. And he said, when a horse learns to buy martinis, I'll learn to like horses. <laughs> yeah, beautiful quote. And uh, Barbara McQueen, at the at the end of his life, um, you know, she he bought her horses and she said he really knew how to handle horses, but he just didn't like them. I guess they they spooked him. Or, but this one stepped on his foot many, many times. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, he had, I guess he had a bad... Uh, bad history with them but um you see him on tom warren he really knows how to handle that horse so but um it's 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 an ironic quote but it's a funny quote it is and he's cute as a button i don't know what makes me tick and i don't want to know whatever it is it just comes maybe i'll wake up one day and it'll be gone and he's home they're taking pictures this is very very sweet and sad quote. Too many people in this town, too many people in this town like to hurt fragile people. I get very mad when people aren't careful with fragile things. Yes. And that, that McQueen was um, really good to the crew, um, good to fellow artists, but when it came to uh, movie executives, uh, you know, they would, they would incur his wrath. And I think a lot of that has to do with this. And, you know, he, the cruelty. As a, not yeah, treating you like and, and you're so, a human being. You're just a piece of exactly. Meat. Yeah, and so I think that he learned to be the protector, and that's that's part of why people like him is because he was the protector of the small guy. That's what he seems to me, and and all of the quotes make it there. Right now, I'm at the point where um, he finally traced his father. He had died three months earlier, so we never got to see each other. His friends told me he used to watch me on TV and that he was real proud of me. But maybe they just said that because they figured I wanted to hear it. I wanted to stand in front of him, just face him square, and ask why he left us the way it did. It hurt my mother at time and it hurt me later, but I guess he was just a bastard who didn't give a shit yeah. well, about his father. Very sad. Well, Very sad. And, and for many, many years, no one knew who his father was. He... he Steve didn't even know who his father was. He thought he was a barnstorming pilot. Well, when I started doing my research on um, Steve McQueen, The Life and Legend of an American Icon, in 2009, the the census rolls came out, and every, they, they updated every 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I looked on there, and all of a sudden, William McQueen shows up, and it has a birth date. And I went, holy cow, this is this is unprecedented. So I look it up. I see the birth date. And then I start doing military records, and then I find um, I find out that he's a merchant marine. He wasn't a barnstorming pilot. And then he lists his he lists his dependents, and he doesn't list Steve, but he lists uh, a daughter by the name of Terry McQueen. And so I I looked at it and went, wow, Steve McQueen has a half sister somewhere. So then I look her up, and I find her in Colorado, and 
I have these photos of him as a Marine and his mugshots. And then I call her up and I said, I said, I don't know if you know this or not, but I think that you're Steve McQueen's half sister. She goes, Oh honey, I've known that for years. And I said, well, why haven't, why haven't you said anything? Why you come out with this? She was like, well, who would believe me? I said, do you have any pictures of your dad? And she said, yes. So she emailed me these three photos. Wow. And as you can see, they've got Steve, this guy has Steve McQueen's forehead, especially that one in the middle. Yes, I mean, the middle McQueen's one, head. you can see Steve McQueen's yeah, yeah. forehead. But He's you, not as you, cute. He doesn't have that You can see smashing. his lips. You can see his yes. ears. You can see his nose. They're all Steve. But that one in the middle especially has his profile. But so when she did, when she sent me that, she sent me those photos and they matched my photos. That's when I knew I had my person. Huh. And did Steve know? Steve didn't even know. Wow, that's such a shame. Well, and and the the shame of it is is that you you can look on this uh, death certificate and you can see where uh, oh, that he he's died not even listed. Liver. Oh no! And he was how old? I think he was fifty two or fifty three. Mm-hmm. And his mother died. Steve's mother died when she was fifty five. Which led, led, leads to a very famous quote that he said yes, later on in the book. Yes, which is very, very oof. Um, here's lovely pictures of he and Neil in California. I like California. I like the sunshine. And yep. then he starts racing, I guess. Is that when he starts racing, when he gets to California? He's yes. interested well, he in love races. He, he raced in New, in New York, outside of New York City, Um when he was uh, in, in um, you know, when he was acting, but it was that MG that he won in a poker game. So that's when the racing started. But but now that he had uh, the TV show, he could really get into motor racing uh, at the level that he wanted, which means it takes money. Um, so, yes, he started racing motorcycles and started racing cars. That was kind of his release. He sure did. And there's tons of pictures of it. Here's a quote. There, have a movie magazine shot. I have a beautiful wife, and I'm putting my money into stocks and bonds on my own home and crave myself a career, and I is going to toe the line from now on. <laughs> well, we know he didn't, but Steve... But I have an English publisher, and he goes, and I is going to toe the line. Is that right? I said, you have to understand, yes. He's he's talking slang, but he's yeah. talking, he's trying to be funny. Yeah, it's like, he's I ain't going to do that stuff no more. Yeah, I say that. Everybody, yeah. yeah. So it's funny for a British guy. He's like, you've got that mm-hmm. wrong now. Yeah, hey. he speaks the King's English. I had to explain to him that... McQueen was a tough New Yorker, and you know he did. He, he spoke a lot of slang, so um, he'd, he'd question every now and then when something like that would come up. Here, so this is cute. The quote below underscores Steve McQueen's often contradictory behavior. He was often faithless to his first wife, Neil, but craved the emotional security of marriage. To me, mm-hmm. marriage is a sacred thing. It's heart. That's where it's all at. It's sharing your roof and bed. And sharing your bed and bed. <laughs> Another broad, Steve. <laughs> well, and, you know, the thing is, the sad part is, is he believed that. I truly believe that he believed that. And I think that he compartmentalized his other life. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, like I'm a star. This is what's expected of me. But at, when I'm at home, I'm with her and she's my heart and soul. And she was. And, and I believe that's 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 the sad part. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a, a mentality of a different era. Yeah. I think some guys still feel that way too, but not oh, as sure it was do. then. 
I love this quote. I may not be pretty, but I've got a keen personality. <laughs> Cute picture of him. He's yeah. on a, a press jacket for Bob Hope. Yeah, it's adorable. And him playing uh, Jerry Colonna and Steve hamming it up. I love that picture. I'd never seen that before. It's because like, McQueen's um, kind of serious oh, quite a bit, or, or he's he's most effective when he's serious. But uh, there's a lot of playful shots in here with him. I have got the greatest. I'm going to send you some of the shots. I'm sure you have them, but I have to send some because Steve had boogie fever. I saw, I oh, have yeah. so many. Him with one of the Johnson sisters, the president's daughters. Yes. Yep. Boogieing down, and she's really yep. getting into it. He could dance. Oh, yeah. And he was like a hugging on to John Wayne, kind of slow dancing. <laughs> and him doing, he loved, he was born to Boogie Baby. He would have been a disco king if he was around. <laughs> he was around in the 70s, wasn't he? Yeah. And, Bar- and Barbara McQueen had told me a funny story about that, too. Uh, that, that yeah, he he. She said that it was the seventies. It was it was a disco era, but he was doing all these dances like the Watusi and <laughs> all these things from the sixties. It was a little about a decade off. Oh, but it's adorable. I loved him doing those Watusis with that Johnson sister, and and it's like everybody's off to the side, and you see her face. It's so serious. She's really getting down and getting as funky as she thinks she's getting. So it's <laughs> I love those pictures. Here's one with him and Frank. Sinatra. When we met, I sort of dug him. I'm sure Frank dug him. And as he said, and he dug me. We're like minds. We're both like children emotionally. And he also talked his lingo, broads and all that stuff. That was his words. And they were neighbors, by the way, in Palm Springs. Um, I didn't know Steve lived in Palm Springs. He did. He had a a weekend home there. He had two homes there. And then he upgraded to a neighborhood. It's the coolest neighborhood because I go to Palm Springs twice a year. And it's a place called the South Ridge. And you drive up a little hill and then you met it at a guard gate. And in in that neighborhood at that time, it was only at the time, it's expanded now, but it was Frank Sinatra, Steve McQueen, and Bob Hope. Cool Hand Luke's. And what's that? I said Cool Hand Luke's. Nice neighborhood. Yeah, (laughs) it was very nice. You can actually take a hike up there. And as you take the hike up there, you can also see the house that was in James Bond's Diamonds Are Forever. Um, So that's in that neighborhood as well. I think it's it's called the right house. Not positive. But anyway, um, those two really like each other a lot. And Frank... Um, gave him a glimpse of the superstardom that, that McQueen wanted. When, when Never So Few had its debut, McQueen went back to New York City and they had this, you know, they, they had the big splashy debut and he followed Frank around and Frank put on a concert and he saw Sinatra get the, the star treatment and he whispered to his wife, Neil, yeah, I want some of this. And so, you know, his ambition was to be the biggest star in Hollywood as possible. But it's funny. That, those were, that's what he wanted. Yet, his ambivalent statements, you know, his quotes would be ambivalent. Like, I, I want this, yes. and then uh, um, he says, yes, that's, "That's where the contradiction comes <laughs> yes, in." I'm a hard guy to have for a friend. Yep, he knew that, and um, uh, his his friends would tell me stuff like um, he'd say, "Now, don't tell anybody," and then he, you know, he'd, he'd give him a phone number. Um, and he changes phone numbers uh, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then whenever they go out, to, you know, whenever they go out, McQueen never had any money on them. So, like, they'd always have to pay. And these guys were, like, struggling 
they were struggling in their life. They had kids, and they said that McQueen would order everything off the menu, take one bite out of each thing, you know, and just test them that way. That's not so nice. I think, well, but that's what he said. I'm a hard guy to have for a friend. At least yeah. he admitted it. Yeah. But, but those were the kinds of things that he would do. Because hmm, he could. Well, not. I think it came from a place of, um, you know, he just, he was, it wasn't out of a diva kind of place. It was more out of a, I've been through this hard life and I'm testing to see if you're going to stick with me. Did they? They did. Yeah, Good. they did. And his friends were, his friends were very, very loyal to him. And he in turn was loyal to them as well. But, uh, you know, I've been around people like this and they, they drain you a little dry with the testing. And so, like, I'm the kind of personality of enough of the testing, I'll see you later. Right. Um, it's, some of these people, they hung in there. Yeah, I don't have that. If someone's doing that kind of thing, I don't have that wherewithal yeah. <laughs> because I, like, I don't need this. Life's too short. This is the stories of Tinsel Town.